0: Welcome to Epidemiology Now. My name is Eun Yang Lee. Epidemiology Now is a podcast prepared for students in Health 323 Introduction to Epidemiology at Queen's University. Hey, hello, everyone. Today, the topic we're going to be covering is cohort studies. So there are two main types of cohort studies, prospective and retrospective. And I invited a very special guest. her name is Dr. Lee Bandelew. She is a Knowledge Translation Manager for National Nonprofit Organization Participation. So welcome, Lee, to our podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Lee, for having me. I'm super happy to be here and talk about uh, cohort studies and how I've been using them a lot um, in my research recently.
0: Yay! Well, thanks for coming in. I really appreciate it. Um, And I'm sure my students will appreciate um, having you as well. So we're very excited. Um, So before we begin and talk about cohort studies, do you want to introduce yourself to our students?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I can give a little bit of a a brief bio. So yeah, um, as Dr. Lee mentioned, um, I'm currently working as the Knowledge Translation Manager at ParticipAction, and our main goal is to really help support more active behaviors among Canadians, regardless of um, age, gender, or ability, um, as well as helping to support a decrease in sedentary behaviors. Um, so how I got there was um, my background, um, I did my bachelor's was an honor specialization in health sciences and a minor in French, I then went on to do my master's in public health and health promotion, uh, where I really focused more so on obesity, um, and looking at environmental impacts on that and how do we kind of create a more supportive Um, environment and how do we help support uh, healthy behavior change to help with um, any items that are related or factors related to obesity and looking at you know that the differences between an obesogenic versus a leptogenic environment. Um, I then started to shift based on some of the work I was doing as a research assistant around um, children and looking at you know the community and trying to focus a little bit more on physical activity Um, I decided to do my PhD um, at Western and my PhD was specifically in pediatric exercise science. And so that really allowed me to take a deeper dive into um, what does physical activity and exercise look like in young kids? So I decided to focus on the early years, so under five. Um, So how does that look like for an, an infant versus a toddler versus a preschooler? How do we accurately measure physical activity in such a young group? so we're not going to be asking them to get on a treadmill um, and measure that. so what does that look like and what's the best way to measure it in such young kids? because we know that even as an infant, um, they need to be active. but what, what does vigorous activity look like for you know an infant when they can barely crawl? Um, and you're doing active tummy time versus you know a preschooler that's now um, you know, has good control over their gross motor skills and are more ambulatory. So um, that's what I ended up focusing on for my PhD, looking at the childcare environment as well. So not just how active they are, but where are they getting active? And how can we ensure that those environments are conducive to more active and less sedentary behaviors? So, I finished, I defended my PhD on a Wednesday, I interviewed for the job at Participaction on Friday, and I got hired on Monday in Toronto. So I had a very, very quick transition, I was actually hoping I was going to be able to take a couple months off and do nothing, (laughs) maybe because I was a student for so long. And I figured this would be that one time that I'd have that carte blanche of just being like, I can travel. I can do nothing if that's what I want to do. Now's the time. It didn't work out that way, but um, I am happy that I uh, was able to get a job. So I moved to Toronto and started working at Participation. And so my main role there is really to ensure that um, all of the evidence and research that keeps getting published on, you know, physical activity and what does that mean, Um, And ensuring that we're able to package it in a way that's a lot more public facing and lay friendly. So, you know, yourselves as students that sometimes when you're reading journal articles, you um, have a better understanding of what they're because it's what you're studying. You're familiar with this terminology, but you also have this appreciation for the fact that it is sometimes quite technical and that to, you know, if you're explaining it to someone who's maybe not in your program, there is that kind of barrier in terms of how accessible that information is. And so... That's really what my role is to ensure that we're finding a way to really seamlessly get that more technical information into the hands of the people that are best able to do something with it, being um, organizations that help support families in Canada or individuals or the actual individuals themselves, so maybe parents, um, teens, so that they are aware of how active they're supposed to be. How do you get active? How do you self-monitor your behaviors? Um, and trying to find more creative ways to kind of package that information. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my main role at participation if I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it um, and really just serve as the subject matter expert, so that everything we do put out, we do a lot of marketing material, social marketing um, initiatives. So just ensuring that everything we're putting forward is you know fact checked, it's evidence based, it's rooted in the current best available research that we know. And working and really collaborating with a number of other experts in the field, um, organizations, um, just to really ensure that we're putting that best information forward or we're serving as that conduit. Um, So, yeah, that's pretty much, I I guess, I would say in terms of what I do at participation. I also have a cross appointment at Sick Kids Hospital where I was serving as a a research fellow there um, within the child health. Um, about, child health and evaluative sciences department um, in their division of pediatrics. And so my main role there was again, looking at the impact of movement behaviors, specifically screen use and physical activity on various health outcomes, uh, either from a mental health or cognition um, perspective, or to cardiometabolic issues. And so that's where I really started to dig into this whole um, area of like cohort studies, because that is primarily everything that we do in our lab. Um, They're being a member of a, one of the largest child health cohorts um, in the country. So uh, we can definitely talk a little bit more about that later on. But in a nutshell, that's kind of what I'm doing right now.
0: Yeah, thank you. Well, it sounds like you're have to wear so many hats. Yes, it is your it, work. It is
1: at times but at the same time I try to appreciate the fact that I get to serve as both someone that helps generate new knowledge but Mm -hmm. also try to find creative or innovative ways to disseminate that knowledge so I get to kind of work on both those domains which I think in the end is going to make me a stronger researcher because it's going to make me think through it's not just enough to produce that new knowledge but how am I going to ensure that it's advancing what we're doing in practice so
0: at least that's the goal (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Because we our last um, topic of this course is knowledge translation. And, you know, in that conversation, I speak on, you know, how much researchers um, lack in knowledge translation skills. The only thing that we do maybe is to publishing a peer reviewed paper, or presenting our study at a conference at an academic conference, right? Yeah, I think it's exactly
1: right. We're not trained to do that. I think when we think of knowledge translation, it's exactly that. We check that Mm -hmm. box. It's like, okay, I've published it um, or I've presented it Mm -hmm. um, to my colleagues in an academic setting. Um, So it's more of that passive knowledge translation. We're still disseminating it, but it's definitely a more passive route. um, And we can see inherently that it doesn't really move beyond our group in that it Mm -hmm. kind of stays when we go to a conference who do we present it to other researchers and clinicians that already have an invested interest in what we're doing Mm -hmm. Um, but it doesn't go there so i and i think it's it's further challenging in that now when we apply for funding for grants um or either other forms of project funding is that we're now being asked to you know put forward some sort of detailed integrative knowledge translation plan Um, but it's not just enough to say oh yeah we'll do KT or we'll we'll publish you know in a couple open access journals is that these funders want to see some plan and it's very hard because many of us do not have that training on how how can we even propose a plan let alone actually execute or operationalize that plan and so um, I think it is demonstrating that it's not just enough to To be a researcher in your domain but to also think about you know implications or bringing on some sort of expert um, in KT when you're thinking of putting together a research team.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah and that that speaks to how versatile you are as a researcher. You're a knowledge translation manager but at the same time I know that I know your you know PhD dissertation work you've been participating in reviews Um, cross sectional studies. And now we're going to be talking about cohort studies based on a paper that you recently published. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome that we have you um, to speak about cohort studies today. It's like, (laughs) yeah, it's like we are getting everything in one package. (laughs) Well,
1: I'm happy to be here and to pay it forward. I'm I'm (laughs) flattered that you wanted me to come and speak with your group. So um, yeah, and I mean, I spent so many years as a student, same with yourself, being a trainee, and some things are amazing about it, and other things not so great. So I'm happy to finally, after many years, be in a position that I can now pay it forward. And I feel that I was fortunate that I had a lot of mentors that were, you know, close in age to me that were still ahead of me, but that I could really draw on for, um, you know, helping me and whatever my career path was, like, I actually wanted to be a French immersion elementary school teacher. So I definitely, you know, went way, way away from that. I knew I liked kids, and I knew I liked science. So I kind of Mm -hmm. thought that's what I would end up in so I still feel in a roundabout way that I got to do that I'm still in science and I still I I, my research is on kids so I feel in a way I still kind of got that but yeah like definitely took a huge derailment in terms of my original plans of what I thought I'd be when I grow up
0: yeah but you know, as I speak with um, other people for this podcast, I find that, you know, everyone took a really interesting route and, you know, they just say it like, oh, I never imagined myself being here, including myself. So it's really interesting how um, everything, like the life just takes you to where you are right now.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And I I think I started viewing time spent in school very differently like you know obviously as you get older you get wiser you like to think you do and you learn from that but yeah in my third year of my undergrad I was speaking to uh, one of the academic counselors just making sure you know I'm all en route to like graduate and do all that and I thought health sciences with my French were both teachables, but because health sciences was a newer program um, at the university at that time, it wasn't being recognized yet. If I was in medical science or just one of the applied sciences, it was. And so it was kind of like the news was broke to me, like, no problem. You might just have to come back for another term or a year. And at that time, I'm, well, absolutely not. I am not spending more than I need to. In school and I was just like nope I'm done like I will finish out my undergrad and you know I'll think of something else or I'll find another way and then just happened that in that summer I got a job working um doing research uh for Mm -hmm. who ended up becoming my PhD supervisor in the end um but it was completely different from what I thought research was I thought it was going to be you know in a lab with a microscope and I was going to be by myself all the time and (laughs) while that work is so incredibly important and very admirable um I just knew that that wouldn't be a setting that I think I would flourish in we'll say um and so I think that completely switched in my mind what research is what it could be the impact that I could have um with Mm -hmm. the type of work that I was doing and yeah after that I decided to like Oh, no, I think I'd never entertained grad school I don't even think I fully maybe understood what grad school was like I think I knew like professional schools but not really that and I started yeah completely switched I remember telling my parents like I could be in school like another six years and they were like what like you didn't even <laughs> want to do another four <laughs> months and they were like are you sure and I'm sure they had like internal conversations among themselves being like mm. I don't know what <laughs> Lee's doing is the best thing but yeah like here I am so i'm I'm very fortunate for the path and the people I kind of had like before me, and especially being um a female I think in academia and a science kind of field rather than um some of the other fields, I feel very fortunate to have had the 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 opportunity to come across so many other really like strong female academics or researchers that kind of forge the way and, you know, a variety, some of them having families and having great family lives and still being, you know, stellar academics and professors. And for me, that was really important because those are all the things that I have and that I want as well. And so, um, yeah, so I think, you know, like you said, for some reason, wherever the twists and turns, like, took me all along these few years to like, yeah, I feel very happy and thankful for where I, where I've arrived today
0: yeah Wow. now I wanna talk about something else than cohort studies. <laughs> <laughs> so much more yes. interesting to talk about women in academia,
1: yeah, definitely have to have another another chat about that some of yeah. our other colleagues and yeah, have a little panel on that in terms of yeah what it's like especially being younger females too. I find you don't just have the the gender aspect, but I find sometimes the age factor comes in too, for so. sure yeah
0: yeah yeah well thanks so much for sharing that Yeah. um yeah and now I guess we have to talk about cohort studies Cohorts. yeah so yeah so, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh. so I
1: mean I assume or maybe not at this time maybe cohort studies were very new to you this first time um coming into it uh that maybe you didn't know I know there's a lot of different uh study design types um you might have heard of some like cross sectional or longitudinal uh, case control studies. So really for cohort studies, um, you know, in a nutshell, it's very much just we're looking at a selected or specific population um, over a period an extended period of time. And so they can be two different types. So We either have the retrospective or the prospective. And so when I always like to think or when I'm explaining is that, you know, present time, that's when we see those cross sectional. That's that snapshot right in time. But when we want to take that retrospective look, we're going to be looking from present back. So we're going to be taking that kind of historical perspective of you know, what might have occurred in the past that has now led us to where we are today. Mm -hmm. Whereas when we're looking at prospective, we're kind of doing the opposite end of the spectrum. So we're looking at everything that happened maybe now or in whatever our starting time was, depending on your study and what you want to deem as that kind of starting point um, all the way to more of that future look. So what might have happened, you know, now or, you know, when kids were three and leading up to future, what are we expecting or what might we find? Um, So those are kind of those are the main two types of cohort studies. Um, So there is some similarities when we think of cross sectional in that, you know, we have this exposure, we have this outcome, um, but the beauty or those advantages that kind of come with a cohort study is the fact that we're looking at them repeatedly over an extended period of time and so Sometimes, depending on the journal that you're submitting with or that you might have read something, so maybe you're do, you are you have a study and you're looking at it, That sometimes if it's not saying prospective cohort study, sometimes you might see them use the term like repeated cross-sectional study. And depending on your school of thought, some people might say like no such a thing than if you're saying repeated cross-sectional. But essentially, in a sense, you're kind of looking at that. If you have those repeated measures over time, if you're looking from a starting to you know, that future point, whatever that might be, um, is that there is that sense. So sometimes, you know, whatever way helps you conceptualize or better differentiate between what's a retrospective or a prospective, that's sometimes how I think or when I'm trying to determine, you know, what study design am I going to be using or for writing out a new project grant, um, really what we're trying to look at. Um, So if we want to look at some of the advantages and disadvantages, I mean, every study design have some um, pluses and minuses. And so obviously, I'm a bit biased when it comes to cohort studies, because I very much openly embrace them. Um, You know, they're great in the sense of you get to look at a a particular population over an extended period of time. Um, So you get that... You have that advantage of having time on your side, that temporal precedence that you get to kind of look at whether you're looking at backwards into the past. So that historical, that retrospective, or you're looking forward and kind of seeing, you know, something that happened now, what's the likelihood of, you know, X happening in the future. Um, Oftentimes, you're going to be able to look at a number of different um, health issues all at once. Um, And so, you know, we'll talk a little bit about target kids that I'm a part of, as well as the study that I put. Um, But again, we were looking at kids from birth, all the way up until 18. And we have every year, they're collecting a number of different health data off them via questionnaires versus blood work, um, anthropometric measurements, and so this really opens it up for us to look at like a huge number of different health issues of outcomes and exposures. And, you know, in my work and in my particular study, it was looking at um, their activity levels at a young age between three to 12. And what's the likelihood or the association with them now having some sort of, um, cardiometabolic issue. Um, And so that's kind of what we looked at, but that was just one of many things that we could have looked at. So the beauty of having that is that we're able to look at a number of different issues um, all at once. Uh, We have that temporal thing. It also allows us to maybe look at some really rare or more unique health conditions because we do have that, that historical perspective. Mm -hmm. But of course, with all the things that make the study design great, It also lends itself to those are also some of the most notable disadvantages. So, one is it can be costly. So, it can be quite expensive to maintain a really rigorous um, and powerful cohort study. Um, And so, when I think of even some of the work we've done at Sick Kids Hospital within Target Kids, you know, multi million dollars in terms of setting it up and making sure that we can follow tens of thousands of kids hopefully from birth all the way until 18. And so with Target Kids, we are now entering our 11th year of the cohort. So from the very first time, which is great, Uh, we do have about 20,000 kids that we've been following that that long and have like their repeated measures. Um, But it is very expensive, it's very costly and it's not just from, from a participant perspective, but it's also from the research staff the various clinics that we have on board to run with it. So there's a lot of moving parts. And so it does get, it can be pretty pricey. And um, to keep it going. So of course cohort, it's longitudinal. We're trying to keep it going longer. Um, The cohort city is only as good for as long as we can keep it going. Um, So that can be hard. Also ensuring like accuracy of data collection, especially if you're doing retrospective studies, it's hard to get people to necessarily recall what they were doing. So you want to make sure that you constantly have that kind of good, solid data collection all the way through. Um, Mm -hmm. This is often why we see more prospective cohort studies than retrospective, because it is sometimes harder to get that historical thing if we don't have good records from the get go. Mm -hmm. Um, And being mindful of like, as we adapt and start changing things moving forward, does that make some of the stuff we collected previously, maybe not as good, or are we not going to be able to use it to compare? Um, And then the other big thing is just participant dropout. I think when we're trying to deal with that, and we've had that ourselves, um, maybe we have followed a certain child for five years, but we're now in our 11th year, and we only have five years worth of data. Um, Whereas for some of them, we're hoping to have that full gamut. Um, And it's also not just for the years, but it also could be for some of the data. So let's say we're collecting uh, health data on, you know, 20 different things. So their movement, behavior, nutrition, um, how many visits they might have had to the doctor's office, how many times they had a respiratory, upper respiratory infection, Um, their blood work so looking at their lipid profiles all of that but let's say you know some of the years they didn't have all 20 complete sets maybe they only have blood for you know six of the 11 years or that so that also gives us gaps and so while we're able to look at a lot um, sometimes you do have to your sample size can sometimes be impacted because we sometimes have to remove a lot of participants if I'm looking at say their physical activity and I only have that 70 percent actually provided physical activity data for all the years that I'm looking at I'm going to have to remove if I can't Mm -hmm. do something uh, from a statistical standpoint um, such as some sort of imputation if I can't for whatever reason then that could potentially be a huge chunk of the sample that I actually have to remove and so Mm. sometimes it might limit some of the findings the strength whether or not I find anything is it dependent on because there really wasn't an association or is it more you know impacted by the sample size Mm -hmm. um and then lastly if you are looking at some of those more rare conditions depending on what you are sometimes you need a really large sample size to do that and again Mm -hmm. if if you are losing participants to drop out over the years people move sometimes um your the parents are no longer interested in participating sometimes they just forget to come in or don't have the time COVID for example was definitely a huge thing in terms of how do we keep it going when you know they could do the survey portions but all of the other portions that we would need them to come into clinic and do we couldn't do so how are we going to handle you know 2020 2021 its impact on our data collection so those are definitely some things that we always have to keep or be mindful of and certainly um, have become limitations um, for us Mm -hmm. is there anything else um Maybe any other things that you've maybe encountered, um, Dr. Lee, in terms of anything with regards to advantages or disadvantages?
0: No, I think you've covered pretty much everything, all the important things. So um, Dr. Vandaloo just mentioned that the key aspects of retrospective and prospective cohort studies and how the cohort makes up uh, for a research project, also advantages and disadvantages associated with cohort studies. Um, and I want to highlight one thing. So, you mentioned the temporal sequence of um, cohort studies being one of the uh, ad- advantages of, of the study design. And uh, we talked about causality, establishing causality in epidemiology course previously. And temporality is the most important one to consider when we are determining causal associations between an exposure and outcome. So can you speak a little bit more about that temporal sequence? Like, what do you mean by temporal sequence? And how do you establish that in cohort studies?
1: Yeah, so, um, so for that, it is really important, like the timing of when that mm. collection is. And so, mm-hmm. um, again, for a lot of my work, the movement behaviors, and let's say I'm looking at screen use and cardiometabolic risk, so... You know, if they had a lot of exposure to screen use growing up or from a young age, is heavy screen use from a young age predictive or associated with, um, you know, high blood pressure in later childhood, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, since I can speak to that then since I studied that, but um, for that that it was really important that we ensured that every time for all of our our children, our participants in the study is that the exposure had to proceed when the outcome measure would have been, so mm-hmm. it had to ensure that for every child that we wanted to include and all of their data, we had to look and ensure that the time for that year or the whatever the date range was that we were looking at is that their screen viewing data so their exposure was collected before we would have had all of their blood work and blood pressure collected Mm -hmm. and so that's where it became really important especially if we wanted to get into that whole inferring causality um Mm -hmm. any claims that we wanted to make it was really important that that happened because if we had if they were switched or if they weren't because it's very possible that um, and, and there are cases where that happened that, you know, they were able, they didn't get their questionnaire done. So they returned it, you know, a month or something after they had their clinic visit. And, and so it's important for us to have everything date stamped because we couldn't. So that if it if the, from a temporal perspective, if that had been switched or if we didn't know, or if it was done at the exact same time, it would have been really hard if we had included them that we would have been able to infer causality for the, mm-hmm. that particular relationship that we were looking at.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so information on the exposure should be obtained before we collect information about the outcome. Um, usually how long is long enough to get that information, you think?
1: Yeah, so it I would say that it varies in terms of what you're looking at. So what mm. health behaviors. So for mm-hmm. us, we typically try to ensure that there were months between um for us, especially because of the type of relationship that I was looking at. So when we have stuff around um, cardiometabolic risk and movement behaviors, they're quite sensitive to Mm. that. Um, And so it was important that we wanted to make sure there was enough time between. So I usually took that I wanted them at least if I could. And for the majority, like at least 70, 80%, I could get that I had at least about um, four to six months between when I collected or, or when the data was collected. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not always the case. So, I've definitely seen some that have been much shorter that have just been by a couple of weeks, especially some that have been around growth trajectories. So, when their BMI might have been taking or other kind of adiposity measures, if they would have done something more in a bod pod and we're looking for lean body mass, mm-hmm. um, that. And then we've had some sort of other outcomes, such as breastfeeding, for example. Um, mm-hmm. It's possible that their breastfeeding could have been done uh, within weeks or it could have been within years. So they could have Mm -hmm. been looking at, you know, the breastfeeding that they had, you know, in their first one to two years of life versus, you know, now a school age child and what impact that has had on their, their, um, their adiposity. Mm -hmm. So it does kind of vary, but I, you don't want it in terms of, or at least on my, in my experience or what I've read is that when we say this has to happen before, it's not so much like on the same day that I just happened to take their, um, physical activity measurements. And then, you know, about an hour later, we did their blood work. Mm -hmm. That's not, um, there might be some extent, but as far as I know, like, we want a a good enough amount of time, so that they're kind of mutually suited that there isn't that overlap. So I think that's something important, because technically, you could collect one before the other, but within a matter of minutes or hours.
0: Yeah, for sure. I I completely agree that it can be case specific. So for movement behavior in the early years, and their cardiometabolic health, of course, there's that sensitivity and rapid changes in growing child. So the time frame could be, um, like you said, for the six weeks would be good enough to capture that information. But if it's a, you know, adult cohort, so for example, like nurses' studies or Harvard uh, alumni studies or Framingham studies, then you know we are just following people up and let's say we want to see the incidence of type 2 diabetes as people get older then we may need 20 30 years to absolutely and we're seeing
1: that a lot also with um like adverse childhood experiences so like aces um Mm -hmm. what happened you know were you uh, growing up were you subjected to maybe um poverty or intimate partner violence like witnessing it between you know your say your mom and a potential partner mm-hmm. um yeah so having to move all of these different things maybe you had were subjected to um bullying or abuse yourself or um either a sickness so some kids that have that had received um cancer diagnoses when they were really young um and then what has that impact had on their overall health as a teen or adult and we're seeing that a lot of um at least some preliminary stuff is depending on the outcome that we're looking at but say mental health for example um Mm -hmm. if we do do some of those retrospective it's not unexpected that we wouldn't see that growing up they you know did have encounter some form of adverse childhood experience. And so those, that would be a perfect example where you know there could be years, decades between when uh, we would have co- had that exposure data collected versus when the mm-hmm. outcome.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And one thing um, that we covered in, uh, in this course is bias and confounding. And one of the things that we can do during the anal- uh, data analysis stage is to control for confounders. So um, you've mentioned about your paper as an example uh, while touching on cohort study designs, key aspects, ad- um, advantages and disadvantages. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, your study with the focus on like confounders, so covariates that that were controlled?
1: Yeah, so um, I, I guess like before I would mention that one other, just you remind me about biases that can also be an additional... Mm. Um, disadvantage sometimes to cohort studies and that um, sometimes selection bias can become. Mm. um, It could be an issue or limitation in terms of not falling into that pitfall where we kind of cherry pick You know, only the ones Mm -hmm. that have you know these perfect cases or are perfect participants that have everything. So definitely selection bias. Or if we're looking for certain things, sometimes that can become a noted barrier. Mm -hmm. It's not one that I've encountered. And again, it could be because of how the cohort uh, that I work with is currently set up. Um, But Mm -hmm. I know I've seen it before, noted as limitations or just something to at least be um, aware of if you are Mm -hmm. doing that, not to kind Mm -hmm. of fall victim to to selection bias. Mm. um but yeah so basically in terms of for a from a covariate or co-founding perspective for our study that we looked at is there an association between um physical activity um and cardiometabolic risk between for kids between three and 12 um what we had controlled for was things such as age sex maternal ethnicity and education Um, also controlled for fasting hours. So how many hours the kids would have fasted um, for, because Mm. we had all of their their blood panel work. So when we're looking at their blood lipids, uh, we Mm. wanted to control for all of those because we essentially wanted to see that if we regressed all of those out and we kind of had ageless or sexless data or genderless data, were, were the relationships that we were seeing or the associations rather that we were seeing were they true? Were they not confounded by um, some of these other things because of, say, age and the reason? And this is, you know, one kind of piece of advice I would have whenever you're selecting um, what your covariates are, or your confounders. Um, one, it can become a slippery slope that you end up feeling like you're going to control for every single thing. And so sometimes mm-hmm. you run into that thing of, are we controlling for too much? Um The second thing is that when you're building out your conceptual model in terms of what your exposure is, your your, um, outcome, what you're going to be controlling for, as well as, you know, you have your potential mediators or effect modifiers, but um, is really thinking, you know, where they fall on the causal pathway and that whatever you select to control Mm. for, um, I would encourage you to ensure that it's something that can be informed by or backed up by literature. So, for example, one the reason, you know, I chose something such as sex, for example, is that there's a long standing, um, it's been long established that there is a difference on children's physical activity levels based on their sex and gender. Um, and so, you know, we know that boys tend to be more active, at least in the other years, tend to be more active and less sedentary compared to their female counterparts. And so it was important to control for that. Um, same with, you know, age, we know that as we age, our activity levels tend to decrease. So want to control for that. And again, part of it is because we do, we are taking that temporal examination. So looking at that, uh, fasting hours, of course, because we have all of these lipids, um, and also looking in terms of do these variables that you're controlling for, do they impact both your, um, your exposure and your outcome. Do they mm-hmm. just is are they just associated to one in your controlling for is, uh, is there justification to show that also um, sex and age are also known to modify or impact you know the outcome of cardiometabolic risk and so that's why really relying on the literature to see um, what are the, where are there already these established kind of correlates or impacts, and what have other similar studies done in terms mm-hmm. of what did they control for and so I think that's like a good piece of advice and one that I've tried to make sure that when I'm listing out or choosing out which variables I want to enter into my conceptual model to control for that there's some sort of evidence-backed rationale for why I'm including it or not including it Um, again I think this is good for you when you're building out the best models you can but in terms of getting feedback from maybe a committee Or when it goes out for publication for peer review is, again, having that rationale for why you selected to have something entered or not entered. Um, And then again, you know, being aware of the fact that it can sometimes be a slippery slope that sometimes I've definitely started building my model and I now have like 14 covariates, (laughs) you know, I'm trying to think, do I really need... All of these, um, you know, we have things such as, you know, maternal ethnicity um, and education level. We know that those are both important uh, influential factors when it comes to both activity or movement behaviors of young kids, but also in terms of cardiometabolic,
0: um, mm-hmm.
1: understanding that. But then we've also, I've also had questions or pushback on why don't you just have parental ethnicity or a parental um, education or both mothers and fathers. And so mm-hmm. having that rationale for why did I only have female and sometimes it can be because most often the ones in our cases who complete the studies are mothers Um, and so sometimes it's a pure fact of I don't have the parent or I don't have the father's information so I'm unable to enter what like the impacts of paternal that or sometimes depending on your the exposures um, or the variables you're most interested in that association Um, maybe there's really only something to show that it's really just driven by paternal or maternal. And so that's why it's important to, I think sometimes we kind of haphazardly just control for the same things because we think we should, or that's Mm. what everyone else does. So we're going to do it too. But especially when you start to move beyond the kind of quick go-to such as age um, and sex or gender, I think that's where you want to be really purposeful with what you're entering or excluding.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so
1: I, I don't know if that's also been a similar practice or if that's what you do, if there's any other things you like to consider when you're building that out, but.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. So, you know, the one of the advantages of cohort study design and using the cohort data is that we get lots of data, right? We have all the demographic information that we need and all the behaviors and health outcomes. So it's basically up to a researcher which one to choose. And that's why you have to select Covariate exposure outcomes um, backed up by evidence, right? But you know, when we look at physical activity, for example, there is a little, but still, there is an evidence uh, suggesting that uh, you know girls' physical activity is more influenced by mom's physical activity levels, whereas for boys, it's it's dead, right? So mm-hmm. we need both parental data. That will be perfect, but because people just collect data on, on moms, so we don't have data um, um, about movement behaviors uh, among, among fathers of, of young children. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's really important that we have to be mindful and purposeful when we design our study or cohort um, survey.
1: For sure. And I think, you know, you raise another point that, um, you know, if someone, you know, ideally, we want to have, you know, both parents reporting, at least, you know, in this case, what we're dealing with, with young kids. And so again, having doing a cohort study has really allowed us to we noticed that this was a recurring issue that was coming up. Um, And now or well, and by now, I will say, you know, starting in like 2017, even before I joined um, the team at SickKids is that, Um, Now it's been incorporated that they're asking both parents as much as possible that they complete it. So moving forward from 2017, you know, we're now in four years since that addition and, you know, plan to continue forward. um, We're going to be able to make those kind of inferences or at least include those. But again, it goes back to that limitation is that it's only going to be able to we're only going to be able to include paternal information from unless if they were the ones who filled it out from the get go. But then we might not have, you know, maternal Um, or again, it it really depends, too, is that essentially in Canada family, the what was when this uh, target hits, at least at least when the the cohort was first established, um, what defines a family in Canada has changed so much. Um, and so it's also, you know, we're not always going to get for a number of different reasons, a, a mom and a dad filling mm-hmm. it out. It's just, that's not representative of Canadian families. And especially, you know, Toronto being that primary hub, but now we've extended into Kingston, Edmonton, as well as Montreal, this target kit study is that this is not necessarily represented. So sometimes it's going to be um, you know, the two parents, or sometimes we have some kids that, you know, were in foster care or their grandparents are now taking care of them. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's really like, is it parental influence or is it that authority figure that's, you know, mm. most present in their life? And so it does, you know, lend itself to quite, you know, you can really get as complex or not. And it really depends on what you're looking at and what you're interested in. Um, but I think, again, the beauty of doing having, you kind of get another kick at the can because you're continuously collecting that same data moving forward but always keeping in mind that there are some limitations as that for some things I might not be able to reach back all the way to 2009 to use the Mm -hmm. data if the variable um the way even we ask a question has changed like even physical activity some of the questions was just like is your kid active yes no and now you know it's more so like well when are they active what type of activity what intensity Um, Is it indoors or outdoors? And so, you know, over time, we've been able to glean and get more specific as the research has evolved. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, that's something to always think about is that there's a limitation in terms of how far back can I go if the question itself has started to change? Am I really comparing apples to apples?
0: Yeah. And you've raised a really important point. Our society is constantly changing, especially in Canada, Toronto. So yeah, what makes a a family is now different. It's different than what we traditionally thought it would Mm -hmm. be. So one of the disadvantages associated with cohort study design is that we have to constantly update um, the survey items, right? Mm -hmm. So beforehand, let's say like in 1980s, we asked, um, you know, mom's education level and dad's education levels. We, right now, if we ask the same question, we may have, or we must change the wording for that too, for sure. Yeah.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's something that we're we're running into. And we see even like some larger national level ones, some some that are being, you know, say ran through Stats can or something. Like it's not it's not something uncommon that we're not encountering. And it's so mm-hmm. it's always that fine line in terms of this question isn't necessarily reflective or it's not really getting at what we want to get at. But Mm -hmm. how do you tweak it in a way that hopefully won't exclude all the past data that we have? So sometimes it has to be a complete change and then it kind of makes like, oh, I mean, maybe we can kind of retrofit some things that we can still kind of glean something and use Mm -hmm. it. Or maybe, you know, we're going to have to only look at kind of subsets or segment what we're looking at. Or sometimes, you know, it still could be salvageable depending on how much we change. But you're absolutely right in that the questions we ask, how we're asking, the tools that we use, mm-hmm. you know, maybe at one point this questionnaire was the best thing in terms of assessing young children's activities and now we have them wearing accelerometers. Mm-hmm. So it's great because all the data now is objective and it's a much more reliable and valid measure using accelerometry with young children's activity but what happens to the previous like 10 years of data that we had that it was questionnaire and it's You know, it was a valid questionnaire at the time, and it still is. It continues to be used, and so one way that we've continued is that we never stopped asking the questions about physical activity. We -hmm. kept those going, so we at least had that continuous stream. Um, But now, just again from 2013, we've had accelerometry data in addition to that. So depending on what we're looking at, uh, Mm -hmm. sometimes we might utilize both. Sometimes we might, um, since we do have some established like reliability between the two. I would say it could be stronger between that, but there lends itself to that. But depending on what it is, we'll usually always gravitate towards the, ex- the objective data rather than the questionnaire data, just because of some of the inherent limitations when it comes to physical activity and screen use mm-hmm. um, in terms of bias and under overestimating activity levels. But mm-hmm. um, that's an example where we've tried to kind of minimize the blow and not just exclude it completely. Um and where it might be okay, or, you know, permissible or forgivable to rely on more of a, you know, a proxy report than an objective measure.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so in your paper, you've outlined a number of limitations associated with your um, study design. Uh, can you just mention one of them and one of them and what that was and how yeah, you would have so... done differently if you can?
1: Yes so that example specifically because it was done with um, with screen use when I first started or sorry with physical activity um, mm-hmm. they really wanted to look at that impact on they hadn't they had been collecting all of this movement data for so long but they didn't necessarily have someone to to dig in and analyze and so um, in order because we were looking from three to twelve years and we wanted to include all the data that they had um, they ended up wanting to use um, the questionnaire data for the physical activity so it is a valid questionnaire Um, it's off of the gpac it's the same that the canadian health measure survey uses so it's a readily used tool Um, and there is some you know the psychometrics are, are okay like decent in terms of that's your only thing now at this point we also had accelerometry data but not for that extended period of time so um and especially being a physical activity researcher where all my stuff was using objective measures, never a questionnaire. It was a bit personally painful to go through that data because part of me was like, I wouldn't use this. But um, in order to answer the question that we were looking Looking at it, you know, was sufficient um, to do that, but I would say that that ended up being a limitation because we didn't necessarily find some of the associations that maybe what we were hoping for or had anticipated based on other mm. previously published work. Um, granted, part of it could be the young age of the kids. Is that sometimes with cardiometabolic risk? Um, you know, at three, are we really starting to see some strong trends emerging? For sure, there are some cases where two-year-olds already start to have, show signs of atherosclerosis, so, or plaque buildup. So, for sure, there's some, but, you know, this is working with a a typically healthy population, so we wouldn't necessarily see. So, one thing, is it young, was it just too young to see some of those change, or those trends emerging, or is it because the tool that we were using, um, in this case, so proxy reports, so parent reported physical activity levels, maybe just weren't sensitive enough Mm. for us to really determine whether there was a true association between physical activity um, and uh, the cardiometabolic factors that risk factors that we were looking at. And one of the main limitations, um, for those of you that don't know, is sometimes using questionnaires, especially around movement behaviors, is that parents, Uh, notoriously overestimate how active they think their kids are and underestimate how sedentary they are or how much time they watch screens Um, and so that could be another thing in terms of why it was important to note that as a limitation because you Mm -hmm. know despite having you know nine years worth of data uh, from these same kids that we were able to look at all that there was an association so we're stuck with you know, it could be that there really isn't an association during that period. That's one thing. But we can't necessarily say that for certainty because we don't know if maybe something that was maybe playing a role is the, the choice of tool. And so um, in terms of looking at a limitation and kind of highlighting some future directions would be to repeat to that study Um, looking or running a similar study, but rather than using parent reported or proxy reported uh, physical activity levels would be to actually use, draw on more objective measures, so from an accelerometer um, Mm -hmm. and looking at that, which is what since um, we've been doing, but that's an example of, you know, if we only took the objective data at that point, we would have only had maybe 100 participants that we would have been able to include, and so it made more sense in a much stronger study to actually utilize, um, you know, two thousand cases, uh, but using a, a, a survey. Mm.
0: Okay, so if we if you used objective measure of physical activity for this study, at least you can eliminate um, using subjective measures uh, for, to measure PA as exactly. a potential reason. Yeah.
1: Exactly, and you know, it's very tr- it's very possible that we could rerun the study and find the exact same thing. But for mm-hmm. those reasons that you just said, at least we'd be maybe more confident in some of the claims that we would make. Yeah, and that you know what seems that three physical activity doesn't play a huge role in determining whether or not a child at twelve is going to have you know increased risk for cardiometabolic issues. -hmm. Um, At least we feel more confident. It's just we couldn't say with exact certainty. Or again, going back to that whole causality thing, Mm -hmm. um, if that was the case, and is it because we're not? Is this lack of association true, or is it due to maybe our choice of tool?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, very important point. We've been covering in our um, epidemiology course that causality is basically established based on our confidence and building that confidence it's replication, it's consistency, it's strength, and, and it's temporality. Also the use of um, measures that we, we do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, awesome. So I think we've covered uh, cohort studies pretty well. Um, before we finish, is there anything that you wanna say to our students?
1: Yeah, I I mean, my thing, it's not going to be cohort study related.
0: Oh, yeah, There's for no sure. More yeah. questions
1: about yeah. that. You can yeah. and reach out via email.
0: Yeah, one thing that really struck me is that you when you went to grad school, like you didn't plan it and you didn't know, you know, what the grad school is about. And now you're, you know, doing so well using your skills and knowledge. So it'll be nice to um, hear from you. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. So that, I mean, that kind of like on that route, it was going to be like this idea of like perseverance and just Mm -hmm. kind of moving forward with, with that. I think, um, you know, and again, this isn't to put myself down. It's more so that um, I was never, and I'm okay with that. I was never going to necessarily be like that smartest person in the room all the time. I knew that even though, and I, I thought like I was a strong student, but I knew that even if I had that 92, there's someone that has the 94, the 95, the 98. And I had to learn to become okay with being like, you know what, I'm not going to be that 98 student, but that's okay. And I don't have to be to still be very successful and accomplished with what I do. Um, but one thing that I think sometimes isn't hampered home a lot, I think, especially when you're in undergrad and in university, Um, that you're always chasing after that next thing that, you know, you start Mm. to get used to, it's never enough. And that, you know, you can easily start to be like, Oh, it's only 92. What happened to the other 80%? And what I found is, you know, very much just trying to like, it's just persevere. I think sometimes those softer skills aren't always embraced or encouraged as much, or at least that's what we feel like we're not hearing and maybe in true, or in fact, we do have a lot of people in our lives that are saying like, you know, you did your best, you at least tried, you took your shot. Um, But I would say that one of the great, the biggest things that's probably led to my success and why I've been able to secure a number of, you know, different research wards or or publish or be able to do what I have been able to do is because I've at least always tried and that I've always just tried to keep putting those steps forward in terms of like, okay, why didn't it maybe land perfectly that time? And how can I course correct? How can I improve um, next time around? So I would say, you know, persevere. Uh, And the second thing would be probably um, around this idea of, um, how do I perfectly word this? Um, but I, I think it's like around one of those things of just um not kind of losing sight of kind of like yourself throughout wherever you're kind of going for it. I think, and again, maybe being very type A is that I very quickly learned that um, my identity was so tightly tied to me being a student. And I felt that the minute I kind of lost that, you're no longer a student, you're now entering into the professional world, which many of you, you know, after you finish your undergrad, um, is that, you know, all you've known is what it's been like to be a student. And I found that that was quite jarring for me, even though thinking like, this is great. I'm obviously a functioning adult. Like you've been living your life all the way through. Um, but I did find that kind of being a transition into like, I'm no longer lead the student. I'm now lead the professional and having all of these additional expectations or not having this idea of like, maybe because when I could say I was a student, people were so like, oh, well, it's okay. Like, she's just a student or it's, you know, and for whatever, whatever, you know, for better or for worse. Um, but I did find that like a bit of a transition. And so I think it's just like, you know, kind of like, Quiet your mind, allow yourself to kind of go through those those moments, those experiences and that, you know, before you know, it, you're going to be looking back and thinking like, what was I worried about, but I think just, you know, being kind to yourself and giving yourself time to transition. So yeah, the whole perseverance point is just keep trying. It's okay if you don't get it perfect the first time. Mm-hmm. Embrace embrace critis- constructive criticism. I will add that in that there's always going to be people that are saying things that I don't mean those naysayers. I don't mean the people that are trying to bring you down. Um, but I mean, even your profs or anyone in life, you're not going to get it perfect every single time. There are going to be things you have to improve and you can't grow if you don't get some of these things pointed out to you, and if you want to be that top notch in whatever field you end up being, you're going to have to be able to take that criticism, but use that as ammunition to get that much better. Because once they point it out once, it's going to be unlikely that you're going to do it again, mm-hmm. when something gets pointed out. So I still to this day, in fact, I question if I get a paper back or some sort of grant back and there's few edits and they're like, oh, great job. It makes me think they didn't actually take the time to read through it because I know it's like, well, it's not a completely perfect paper. I know there's things and Mm -hmm. but I know when I look at my writing back to when I was an undergrad to now how much it's immensely improved. And that's because I've had that time to look at it and ensure I'm not going to do it. So Mm -hmm. perseverance, embrace criticism and just be Kind and gentle, just give yourself that time to transition and you're going to develop that whole new identity and whatever that might be, whether it's becoming a parent, whether it's now, you know, you're a young professional, um, whether you're, you know, traveling, whatever, taking that break is, I think, just allowing yourself to, it's okay, you don't need to have this perfectly boxed off identity of what that means and I mean even someone like myself who I really thought I could not have paved out things better for myself even still I had went from a student and literally had two days before I then was like this young professional career woman in the big city we'll say like in Toronto and I still felt like what am I doing I don't know who I am this whole (laughs) imposter syndrome thing all I wanted was I couldn't wait to have my weekends and my evenings back to not have to do homework or studying. And then I found myself being like, what do I do now? I don't have those things anymore to fill my time. Um, And so really reintegrating to like, my nights are my own now, my weekends are my own, I can go back to just fully enjoying and embracing time with my friends and family and going out and doing the sports that I used to do. So I think those would be my big three take home as you start to, you know, you'll be getting to that transition point yourself um, sooner rather than later. And so just Mm -hmm. trying, those would be my biggest pieces of advice um, having gone through that um, about three years ago now, so.
0: Yeah, wow. I think I have to say that was the best uh, take home messages (laughs) in this (laughs) interview series. Oh well I'm glad. I hope you
1: can all learn from five six, which I didn't know when I left and I was like, no, that's yeah. what I thought. Yeah. I was be like.
0: Yeah, that's well. That's awesome. Thanks so much for sharing that, um, Dr. Bandalu, and thanks for coming in. Absolutely.
1: Thank you so much for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Thanks.